Francis. It's my first time virtually. Um, and the uh, first time, sorry, that's, yeah, but the first actual time I was there in, in the flesh, real, real life, um, meet space like we used to do it. And um, I had a lot of fun talking to people in the flag room. I fear it might be a little while before I get to do that again, um, seeing as our border is closed and I'm speaking to you from Toronto. Um, but I do hope that it's sooner that, rather than later and that I get to come and see you relatively soon. But to be clear, um, I want to make sure that I'm not misconstrued as thinking, you know, that I'm a person who thinks we should open up recklessly or do anything unsafe. I'm, I'm a bar advocate, but I think like a lot of people who are adjacent to the industry or in the industry, um, we really are thinking in terms of safety before anything else. And um, you know, I, I feel like there are quite a few people in the industry in Toronto that I know who feel this way. So I, that's not my, my take in case you were, you know, from the way this is set up, it might sound like it is what we're missing while the bars are shuttered. And I know that you guys have some reopening coming in a little bit. So you have that to look forward to. Um, you know, as a bar historian, I know that bars will survive as an institution. And I know um, that they will be back. They've survived an awful lot of things in America. They are older, in fact, than restaurants. Um, and what I am really, uh, I'm counting on this institution to thrive into the future, and I'm sure it will, and I'm, I would be surprised if it didn't. Um, I guess what all of us probably are thinking about is, um, you know, will the bars that we love now, the ones that we cherish, um, that are an important part of our history, will they make it to a post-pandemic world with the same owners and the same staff and the same locations? And we know that not all of them are going to make it. And um, that's quite sad. I'm hoping that a vast majority of them will through some combination of pivoting and entrepreneurship and government initiatives and fundraising and things along those lines, um, but we are going to lose some. I myself lost um, my bar this summer, um, the bar that I worked in 25 years ago when it opened up, and the bar that in a lot of ways inspired me to write this book. Um, and after 25 years, the owners who um, both had had cancer just decided that um, they didn't want to take the risk of reopening at this point and they had done enough for 25 years and we had a little you know wake for the bar in my backyard and we all sort of had a drink and mourned the loss and those of us who worked there as staff members and the owners well we'll probably stay in touch but you know the regulars who drank at the bar I don't know about that will they ever see each other again you know and I think that that's the thing that we need to think about when we're thinking about what we lose when we lose a bar, which is that we lose a, a community and a community center for a lot of people. Um, and uh, hundreds and dozens, if not hundreds of connections will be lost with each bar that we lose. There'll be oral history that will be lost with each bar that we lose. People you know, who can remember things that happened in the neighborhood 25 years ago. It's harder to find them. It's harder to keep track of things. So I'm thinking about all of this. Um, and 
just the sort of overall social significance of bars and where we're at right now. But of course, as always, in a historical context. Um, I have to keep track of my time because I have quite a lot that I wouldn't mind saying. I want to bring up a, a, my PowerPoint now after that introduction. And everyone can see it okay? Terrific. Okay, so this is the book that I was referring to. Um, and uh, the bar that I worked at was really just a neighborhood bar, not a fancy cocktail bar or anything along those lines, although I've written quite a lot about that. And I'm thinking about not just the connections that will be lost um, and the dreams of entrepreneurships that will be lost, but the dreams that have been born out of bars historically that we have seen that my book is largely about. And um, for me, the two books that the two bars that really bookend um, my book are the Francis Tavern and Stonewall, the Stonewall Inn because those are two important chapters in the history of American bars that are really far apart, but of course in New York, really close together. You can walk from one to the other in about an hour. And this sort of idea of um, dreams that can be uh, come reality within bars, much like what happened at the Francis. Sorry, I have the two, oh, there we go. Um, you know, so these are radically different bar scenes that we're looking at that are awfully close and 200 years apart, um, but uh, have an awful lot in common in many ways. So um, I think that probably a lot of people who are tuned into this kind of know a little bit about Colonial Taverns because it is the Francis Tavern that's hosting it. But I'll just sort of um, background it a little bit quickly to say, you know, um, that uh, I think First of all, I think most people know a little bit more about this kind of history than they did when I started writing about it 12, 15 years ago. Um, and now I think that people are more aware that, you know, thanks to the efforts of places like the Francis, um, of the rich history that took place in the United States in bars. And I mean, it's so well known, in fact, that it even made it into Hamilton. This is, of course, um, the scene, the story of tonight. And in case you didn't, you know, think about it while you were watching it, you know, we do have here this scene where you have this group of people who are saying, um, when our children talk about this night, talk about what happened, the story, they're going to talk about this night, you know, the, uh, that the American Revolution was really born in this moment of these people getting together and talking about their problems and talking about the political situation and bonding over a few rounds. Let's drink another tonight. They'll tell the story of tonight. Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing it or anything like that. Um, but you can probably all remember it. So how did it get this way? How did the colonial scene become so fixed in, in the bar culture? And I, you may know this, I'm not sure, but it's actually, a, oh, that's a little too, too far ahead. Um, it's actually a fairly simple story. And um, I open up a, a fairly early in the book with a quote that is from 1708, Captain Thomas Waldeck. Um, Upon all the new settlements the Spaniards make, the first thing they do is build a church. The first thing the Dutch do is to build a fort. The first thing the English do is to set up a tavern or a drinking house. 
It doesn't sound like a particularly smart way to set up your new colony, but it was a lot smarter than it looked. And one of the reasons that it was so smart is that while you were waiting for your other infrastructure to be built, courthouses, town halls, uh, you know, uh, post offices, and you know, such as they would have been at the time, where people could pick up messages and get news, um, you could have this one central hub where people could do all of these things at. Um, and so the other thing that's really important about it, of course, is the importance of beer at the time, which was not just a recreational drink that you would have with your friends and do toasts with, um, but it was also the safest way to rehydrate. It was considered um, a food. To many people, it was considered a medicine. So it was all of these things at once. So you could have this really efficient town center where everybody could do all of their business from learning the news to picking up their messages to sorting out trials. Court trials were held in taverns. Um, so that worked really well in a lot of ways. Of course, it also planted the seed of um, the British colonial rules destruction um, because people got so used to talking about things in bars that when things went wrong, or sorry, that even when the infrastructure was built so you could handle it in a more formal place, you would find um, that people would still revert to the bar because that was the place they were most um, commonly, they were mo most used to doing a lot of business. It was also long after they had a courthouse the, the warmest place in town. Um, there were a lot of people who would have gone in there and just preferred to move their meeting into that room because there were so many people in there and just the number of people would make it warm, which makes a big difference in New England in January, for example. So the taverns became incredibly important. Um, and of course, as people discussed what the problem was, they did start to see ways in which they felt that they could rule things better in the midst of the intolerable acts that we probably all know something about, that there was some taxation issues that were considered excessive given that there was really no self-dominion, there was no self-rule um, with the colonists. So I'm simplifying this a little bit and giving the Reader's Digest version. Um, but uh, the thing that's wonderful about the way the taverns actually wound up working is they, they provided a transition for when things became concrete. And you start to see that um, they were no longer about a theoretical idea that people were having about how you could um, make things better, make a, build, build a better society and build a better government. And they became very concrete places where people talked about ways to resist British rule. They talked about strategies for evading taxes. They talked about how to um, recruit soldiers for the Revolutionary War. They talked about smuggling, they, and they did in the, in the end during the war, smuggle and store arms there, as well as feed the troops, as well as share news, as well as read propaganda like Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man. And they used to use these spaces as places to rally and build bonds together in order to win the Revolutionary War, much like they did in the story of tonight. Um, I think it was my sense preparing this that a lot of people would really know a fair bit about this story. So I decided, um, and we all know how it ends. So I decided that I would 
talk about another, the bookend, to show how I think it's quite similar in certain ways and how the tavern can kind of play this phenomenal role as what I'm going to call a counter public where a group of people can get together and advance a theory. I mean, counter public isn't my, my word. Um, I'm going to relate it to the idea of a counter public where, where there can be a large enough group of people that they can share this sort of collective imagination about a better way to run a society than the one that they're living in. Um, it's a little bit different, but I would say quite similar in certain ways. And again, I think a lot of us probably already know the Stonewall story or some version of it. And I think that um, uh, most people are probably aware that in uh, the summer of 1969, at the end of June, there was um, a bar called the Stonewall Inn in the West Village of New York. And it was raided repeatedly by the police three nights in a row. Um, or sorry, th three times in a row, not exactly consecutive nights, if I recall. Um, and that at, on the third night, that it became um, too much and that uh, there was this de decision that this was not going to be tolerated anymore and that there needed to be some resistance of the police and that that sparked the great pride movement, which is why we have the pride parade and why it takes place in the summer and that that's the beginning of this. Um, it's, it's actually a slightly more complicated story than that, although that's the one that's commonly told because um, one of the things, for example, um, that gets omitted from that is that these, uh, this is um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who were key actors in, in the initial um, Stonewall uh, protests and that political movement, and were, were essentially written out of that history as it became more mainstream. Um, and uh, only recently have their contributions been recognized. And the other thing that's really important about it, and this is not my original thought, this is John D'Amelio who um, worked on this quite hard uh, in, in terms of sort of establishing the roots of pride and where it came from, is that there's 20 years of organizing in bars that happened prior to Stonewall. You know, that these sort of huge movements don't really just come completely out of nowhere. And John D'Amelio wrote in Sexual Politics and Sexual Communities um, that there was an awful lot of work happening, especially in San Francisco, starting in the 1950s. And one of the really great characters for me out of this era is Jose Saria, who um, I wound up having a chance to, so Jose is no longer with us, but I did have a chance to interview him for my book. And he's kind of a hero of mine. So. Um, it was a, a really great um, moment for me. I spoke to him several times. And um, this is uh, where he worked, which is the Black Cat Cafe. And he worked there in the early 1950s. Um, uh, his mother was Colombian. His father was from Spain. He was raised by um, his mother in California as a, essentially a refugee. Um, and uh, and anyhow, uh, I think the, the thing that's interesting about um, Jose is that he worked as a waiter and a drag performer at the Black Cat Cafe in the early 1950s. And um, although we hear an awful lot about Harvey Milk and Pride, we don't really hear as much about Jose, who was actually the first man 
in America to run as an openly gay political candidate long before Harvey Milk. Um, but he ran for the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. And a big reason why he ran was in response to what he felt was an unfair police harassment of the gay community in San Francisco at the time. So he wanted to have some influence in terms of supervising the police. Um, in a, he didn't win the election. We'll get that out of the way first. Um, but he did get 10,000 votes, which was considered a tremendous feat for a municipal election, not for the mayoral role. Um, and he did remarkably well. And he told me that what he established was that this was an important political community that you had to talk to if you were going to campaign in the San Francisco municipal election at that point, and that he was the first person to really establish that. The other thing that I think that is really interesting um, about Jose is that, and there are, you know, I talked to him for hours and hours, so there's an awful lot that he could share about what happened in that 20 years. He met Kinsey, you know, he was a really fascinating guy. Um, and after those 20 years too, where he also did um, some amazing political work and some cultural work. But he, you know, he would always tell his clientele what to do um, if they were ever arrested for cross-dressing. And um, he told them all to wear a pin at all times, didn't have to be a big one, that just said, I am a boy. Um, so that if the police arrested them, that they could say, well, I'm not a female impersonator right here. I'm clearly saying I am a boy. Um, so they had these kind of strategies of resistance that were being worked out in this um, space in a very organic way. You know, this is really not political organization in a way that a lot of people would recognize it, but it obviously very clearly is. Um, these are the most well-known political movements that are associated with the history of bars, I believe. Um, there's no shortage of other ones, however. Um, and I think that these kind of neatly fit into an idea that you can have of the bar as a political space where you can imagine a different reality and a better community. And you can work in order to um, get a sort of connected group of people who um, can work together to make that happen, even if it does take, you know, decades at, um, at several occasions. Um, that's not always, I think, the role that the American bar plays. Um, and also, there are an awful lot of political movements that were sort of less obviously successful in the way that things came afterwards. Um, but there were definitely uh, many, many more. And in fact, um, I make the argument that the reason that prohibition happened in the first place was because um, of the fact that there were many political movements that were uh, using American bars to organize in the late 1800s. Um, and they were labor movements and they were European socialist movements. Um, and there were a range of different political movements that were um, really kind of volatile within bars in the late 1800s. Now, I think depending on how much you follow the history of drinking, this may seem quite surprising to people because if you have kind of a casual understanding of prohibition, 
Um, most people think uh, have a certain set of ideas about what happened. The first would be that women are the ones who made prohibition happen. The second would be that, um, you know, that it was a failure, that it was about forbidden fruit and unintended consequences. Um, and I would argue that most of these things are incorrect. Now, I'm going to apologize. This is a Toronto Women's Christian Temperance Union picture, not a, an American one, which is inappropriate for American bars, but I just really quite like this picture. Um, so I used this one. And I want to mention a few things about the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, which is, first of all, it was a grassroots organization, largely. Second of all, it was basically run and manned by women almost entirely. It did not have a ton of money. What it funded, what it raised was um, uh, funded very um, in a grassroots fashion. And its initial reason for being was to defend women who and children who were being abandoned or um, uh, abused. Um, because of the alcohol problem that was quite rampant in the middle, especially of the 19th century. Um, so this was really considered like a women's defense um, that was happening at the time. I, didn't, I think that they did a, an incredible job of moving the needle on the thought about alcohol um, in the public opinion and to getting it to be a, a front and center um, issue that people were uh, aware of for the first time in quite some time, or for maybe possibly the first time ever. I'm in, it depends how you argue that. And um, anyhow, um, I don't think that they were responsible for prohibition. And one of the reasons that I would argue that I don't think they're responsible for prohibition is, well, these women didn't even have the vote. Um, so they didn't have a tremendous political power going for them. Um, in order to make a constitutional amendment happen, which is a huge political feat. I mean, this isn't really something that um, is going to be accomplished by a group of people who don't have the vote. My argument is that it was really the Anti-Saloon League who was responsible for getting the Prohibition Amendment passed. Um, I don't think that's a particularly controversial argument. I think that's fairly widely accepted. It's just not necessarily really widely known. And um, the Anti-Saloon League, unlike the WCTU, was formed about 20 years after the WCTU. It was run largely by men um, and it was funded by um, fairly successful capitalists, big businessmen like Rockefeller and um, uh, Carnegie, Gilded Age people who actually did want the saloon closed. It was a single interest issue group, so, sorry, single issue interest group that had one goal and one goal only and would stop at nothing to do it and that was to close the saloon and to make prohibition happen. It's also known for inventing something called pressure politics, which involved propping up anti-Saloon League candidates and applying pressure on politicians through bribes, blackmails, um, and massive quantities of propaganda. These people turned out a tremendous amount of literature on how bad the saloon was. Plus, it was very not very subtle. It was very inflammatory. Um, here's 
from my book, a quote that I quite like. Um, it was the saloon from one of their publications and there were just thousands and thousands of leaflets like this. The saloon was the storm center of crime, the devil's headquarter on earth, the schoolmaster of a decal broken decalogue, the defiler of youth, the enemy of the home, the foe of peace, the deceiver of nations, the beast of sensuality, the past master of intrigue, the vagabond of po poverty, the social vulture, the rendezvous of demagogues, the enlisting office of sin, the serpent of even, a ponderous second edition of hell. So there's no, um, you know, pulling any punches here. The saloon is an absolutely evil space and it must be closed in order to save America. And yet I, I use this image because it's just so lovely. Um, but you can see that the, the devil's recruiting office was something that was used kind of frequently in terms of um, ideas about what the saloon actually was. So the, so the devil's recruiting office there is, and then it's a straight, you know, train ride down to hell after that, the railroad that leads from earth to hell. And this is the kind of imagery that winds up being used quite frequently. And one of the things that's really important about the Anti-Saloon League from my point of view is the way that it positions um, American values versus the immigrants who have recently um, come in and are using saloons <clears throat> in a different way than they've been used before. So you can see this is fairly common that you have kind of wholesome young people who are wrapped in a flag and juxtaposed with, on the other hand, a nation of strangers. And, you know, you see this in reaction to um, the, the great wave of immigration that happened between, uh, you know, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years of the 1800s and a tremendous anxiety over the degradation and degeneration of the white race because of this influx of immigrants that's come in. Um, so between the fact that there was labor politics, socialist politics, that, um, you know, I don't know, you, I believe this is a, a sad story for museums, but I believe that you've just lost the Tenement Museum in New York. Is that correct? It's been closed. I hope it's only temporarily. I had heard it was permanently. But if you understand the way the tenements in New York worked, these were really small spaces and people were very reliant on being able to go and um, have some kind of a social life in a saloon instead. But um, that was very off-putting to an awful lot of white Christians in North America to see this happening. Um, now, I'm not trying to say that the WCTU was not also racist. They were tremendously racist as well. This is a picture from an Americanization center in St. Louis. Um, and you can see everybody again wrapped in a flag. And the whole sort of idea of Americanization is not just about changing people's cultural habits, um, but it's also about teaching them a language. And it's also about teaching them in, in this case not to drink because you have the WCTU involved with the Americanization Center. Um, so anyhow, this is the kind of thing that's working together. Um, the WCTU might have been profoundly racist, but they're distinct from the Anti-Saloon League. Sorry, I went too far. I thought I had a different slide there. They're distinct from the Anti-Saloon League because the Anti-Saloon League explicitly 
allied with the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups. And so this was in a sense their southern strategy for winning over the South because prohibition was not a popular topic in the southern United States. It was very much um, uh, something that was popular. The idea of temperance had a lot of traction in New York State, in Ohio, in places in the North and the Midwest, um, and it also had a lot of traction in places where people were very concerned about immigrants. There were not as many immigrants in um, uh, the South at the time, but there was plenty of prejudice, of course, to worry about. And um, by in 1905, I'm going to say, it didn't look like prohibition was going to go anywhere. People were having the ASL, the WCTU, were having a lot of trouble getting states to really vote it in. And I, I would argue, and I'm, again, I'm not alone in this, um, and it's not entirely original for me, that the Atlanta race riots of 1906 are a turning point for the acceptance of prohibition in the South. Now you could do a whole seminar on the Atlantic race riots of 1906, and I know I don't have a lot of time, so I'm gonna do Super Reader's Digest, um, which was just that there was a governor's race, there were two rival newspapers, there was a lot of anxiety over a burgeoning middle class of a burgeoning black business center in Atlanta. And a lot of the anxiety was centered around Decatur Street, where there were some bars that were known for serving um, gin. And in, at any rate, the, um, uh, what happened is that there was a completely, completely unsubstantiated string of sexual assaults on white women um, that turned out later to be fake news um, and didn't actually even happen in the first place. But the newspapers actually linked it to, as you can see, the dives in the clubs explicitly. This is not particularly subtle stuff. Um, and what that did is it caused an eruption of violence in the city that was lasted over three days and led to 25 deaths um, uh, of 25 black people were dead and possibly more. We don't really have a proper death count um, for exactly how what the toll of violence was from that event. Um, and then what happened after that is that the South kind of went one by one relatively quickly. Um, Georgia was the first state in the South to go dry, but then there was North Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, and Alabama all over the next eight years. And what I think is really um, quite fascinating about this is that if you read this text, I don't know how well any of you can read it, um, but you can see that the demographics are not terribly different from the way they are right now. So you see it says 71% um, of the physical area is prohibition territory, but one half of all the people live in licensed territory in four states, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and New Jersey. One fourth of all the people in the United States who live in saloon territory live in six cities, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Boston, and Cleveland. There are fewer saloons south of the Mason-Dixon line than there are in the city of Chicago. So what you have is this kind of situation that's gearing up where you have the wet and the dry 
and we're looking at a, a very urban and rural divide, which is not a new story and it's certainly no longer a new story to a lot of us today. Um, I, how much time have I got here? Okay, I'm gonna try to wrap this up really quickly. I can do it. Um, so uh, I just put this on here for you to see that I'm not making stuff up. This is from 1921 you wind up with this um, very uh, offensively aggressive sort of uh, um, anti-immigrant status that happens in the 1920s. And to a large degree, people are actually really um, emboldened by what happened with the law on prohibition. And you start to see a, a much kind of more aggressive um, idea about what immigrants will do to the country, that they're going to, um, you know, they're going to fight the government and this government will be a cinch. Soon me and my kind will run this dump and, you know, and so there's this idea that, that there's a, a um, you know, the, the white race is disappearing and the immigrants are taking over the society. And in the 1920s, this gets much more volatile and much worse as time goes on. This leads to, in 1924, the worst anti-immigration law that the United States had seen. To that point, I mean, they didn't really have a lot of immigration laws, but a very, very uh, draconian one, which uh, essentially stopped immigration. Um, and then, of course, um, the open marching of the KKK on the streets. And what, what's really important to know about this very early part of prohibition is that there was also a recession happening at that moment. And the recession that was happening at that moment was um, going to obviously disproportionately affect um, racialized peoples in America, um, Catholics, Jews, Blacks, uh, were all less likely to be able, they were more likely to be impoverished in that period of time. And so um, as prohibition came in, um, there's another thing that's really important to know, which is that because the idea was to get rid of the saloon, not the alcohol, alcohol, owning it, possession of alcohol was still completely legal. So the people who had stockpiled alcohol as soon as the law came in were not under any um, threat of having any kind of penalty or any kind of legal repercussions for owning as many bottles of champagne or whatever you had that you wanted. You could share it with your friends, you could do anything that you wanted with it. What was a problem was selling it. And if you were in dire straits in the, in the early 1920s, which a lot of people were, you might have opened a speakeasy in Harlem or the West Village. And those people were the people who wound up having to pay the, the price of prohibition. So to a largely disproportionate number, um, people who were not white Protestants in America wound up becoming fined or jailed or um, incarcerate, well, this is really the beginning of mass incarceration in the United States, of the modern mass incar incarceration um, moment in the United States. So um, you can see the logic of how it happens. It, it's, it, it makes the saloon illegal, it makes the saloon keeper illegal, but it does not make the alcohol illegal, which sets up this you know, system which is very much like out marijuana possession or things along those lines that we've seen since. So um, it's in almost impossible if you look at it from this perspective, from the lens that I do, to not see prohibition as a Jim Crow law. Um, I'm almost done.
this is good. I'm going to come in right on time. Um, so uh, there were other problems happening in the 1920s. We always hear about Al Capone and the mafia and the increased criminalization. Um, but there were other things at play at the time. Oh, and I wanted to show you this one little slide before. You know, th this was not a secret that the um, KKK and the Anti-Saloon League were um, working together to some degree. You know, the, a, a law like this, a, a prohibition law like this, doesn't only allow police to arrest ethnic minorities. In addition, it also allows vigilantes to police outside of the police system and to harass um, ethnic communities that aren't white Protestant Christians. Um, and so there was a tremendous amount of violence, of racial violence that happened throughout the 1920s. Um, if you were Catholic or Jewish, you were just suspected of being a bootlegger automatically. There didn't have to be any proof of what happened. Um, there, there was just harassment wholesale, especially in places like Indiana um, and the Midwest, uh, where there, were, uh, a, there was a ton of property damage and, and loss of life. Um, through these sort of vigilante groups for the KKK. Um, but the other things that happened during that period were equally troubling. The economy was perhaps not on the greatest foundation as we were headed towards the end of the 1920s. Um, and although the stock market was doing well, it was arguably a, a weak economy underneath it. In addition, there were some 10,000 people who died of poisoned alcohol, which was um, not actually a bootlegging. Um, it, it was related to bootlegging, but it was actually um, a government program that meant that um, started the, the poisoning um, levels that needed to go into. Basically what happens is industrial alcohol can still be turned into alcohol unless you poison it. And, and so people would buy industrial alcohol and then try to turn it into something and disguise it as real alcohol. And in order to deter people from doing that, the government made um, poison level regulations so that um, that industrial alcohol was so poisoned in the first place that it would be impossible to, um, to sell. But of course, it, it, people did sell it and drink it anyway, and they couldn't tell the difference. And, some 10,000 people died. Um, and in addition, you know, to this, there was very little flexibility from both a lot of state governments and the federal government. And instead of sort of allowing a little bit of leeway, um, a lot of places went bone dry, for example, which meant no more sacramental wine, no more um, uh, medicinal alcohol in an entire state would just decide to go completely bone dry. And the federal government, instead of saying, okay, we do have a problem here, increased the level of poison and increased the fines and increased the, the prison terms instead of, um, instead of uh, uh, allowing any kind of flexibility for this situation. So the, the answer was consistently more law and order. I don't know how many people know about the bonus army. I think many people probably do, um, that this was uh, during the depression that veterans um, marched on Washington where they did not, they were not received with um, much, uh, they did not succeed in their um, movement. In fact, um, it caused uh, 
a, an incident where the military were called in on the protesters um, and their camps were burnt down because they had marched with their families all over the country, uh, from all over the country. Um, but uh, these were obviously starting in 1930, in early 1930, the economic depression was a serious problem. And there were people who were obviously um, moved in order to protest. So, so when the government actually attacked the veterans, that was quite shocking to people. I think of that as sort of one of the last straws, um, but you know, there were many. The truth is that there were an awful lot of people in the early 1930s who really felt that prohibition had wrecked the country in far more ways than just Al Capone and the mafia and um, you know that that it had failed on a fundamental level and um, that this prohibition law that I think is really a Jim Crow law really needed to be repealed. So what we saw was a, a really wide um, coalition of people who, some of them were prominent Republicans. On the bottom picture, this is um, the women against, the women for the repeal of prohibition. I can't remember the exact acronym for that. Um, the national uh, prohibition repeal. And uh, they, this was headed up by a Republican who um, was from Illinois and it felt like this was the end and this had to um, end. And so everybody kind of, a, a really large coalition of people got together um, and first in 1930 worked to um, flip the House of Representatives. And then in 1932 worked to flip the Senate and to elect FDR as opposed to Hoover, who was felt to be a failure on a number of levels. Of course, it was the economy that really pushed people to, to move that way, but it was the economy on top of watching children dying of poisoned alcohol and, um, you know, uh, raids on uh, Jewish and Catholic homes in the Midwest and just an, a decade of really um, kind of horrific, gruesome times in America. So um, it did end. I obviously am biased. I'm, I'm happy that FDR uh, won there. I'll be clear. I'm not being objective about this at this point. Um, not so much because the bars and saloons opened, but because of the damage that happened to the country when they closed them. And this is not analogous to what's happening today because the bars today that are closed still, and I know that's not all across America, are closed for safety reasons, not for ideological reasons. And um, um, I think that these are very different. And obviously it shows that we can come up with an imagined idea about how we want the country to work better, even without the bars. So the bars aren't magic, they don't do them all the time. Um, but I hope that when we go to reopen, that the bars will wind up doing something for us that I think we really need, which is um, to perform in their absolutely idealized way, which is to build bridges between people and to help people understand their differences. And bars don't always work this way. Sometimes they work to start revolutions and sometimes they work um, to split people up. There are certainly plenty of bad stories of bars throughout the history of America as well. And they can be violent and they um, can be very volatile spaces. They can be spaces where segregation happens. But the bar that I mentioned at the beginning, the one that I lost this summer, um, 
was a revelation to me because I was a young person working in the industry for the first time at a neighborhood tavern. And there were people in there from all different professions that I never would have met in my English lit department at the university. And um, we all sat together and we all enjoyed each other's company. And all we really had was that we were neighbors. And many of us disagreed profoundly on politics. And uh, the owner, for example, he had voted conservative in election where I had voted for the, the Socialist Party, um, you know, right in the very first year that we opened. But we managed to kind of get over it. And one of the things that was so magical about that bar, um, and this is many bars, most bars, was that everybody's opinion was supposed to count the same, no matter who you were. Here I am, a, a young bartender, and there were three lawyers that used to come in all the time and they would hang out. They knew more about politics than I did. And there were the cooks working in the back of the line and there was a cab drivers and university professors and people from all walks, bookstore clerks. And we all sat together and we all fought it out. And no, we were all supposed to be equal before the bar. And I think that did an awful lot of healing um, in terms of, of our community to a certain degree, you know. Um, and I think that hopefully when the bars reopen now, the one thing that we'll be able to get back is, is a space where people can talk to each other again, because um, uh, I think that uh, we need it. Um, Sorry, that I should have done this before. That's Pauline Sabin from, from Illinois. And I should have left it on this one at the end because um, I think we're, we're at a spot where we need this kind of communication across divides more than ever. So I have high hopes that the bars will one day provide that for us again. And I think I did it in time, I think. Maybe yeah, four minutes over. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Uh, now I'm going to turn things over to Allie, who is going to moderate the Q&A. If you have any questions that you didn't ask during the lecture, please feel free to type them in the chat now. Wow, you guys had a lot of great questions during the chat. I'm very <laughs> impressed. So no pressure, Christine. And thank you again. I mean, that was a fabulous presentation. I learned so much. Oh, thanks. Um, so my first question that I have written down here is about 18th century taverns. Uh -oh. so, <laughs> so we know that they offered beer, but did they also offer any kinds of wine, spirits, any other cocktails? Or would it be this tavern you go to for beer, this one you go to for rum punch or something like that? No, I think that most places would have offered a really wide range of things. And yes, of course, the the rum is such an important ingredient in this story. Things started off with beer, but then um, after uh, a very short period of time, most colonists were drinking a lot of rum cocktails and uh, rum, rum drinks in general. So absolutely, yes, cider, that's right. Um, there were, um, there, there, the spirits became very important. And as we know, many of the founding fathers drank a lot of, you know, sherry, Madeira, um, all sorts of wines. I'm drinking a little Fino Sherry personally. Um, so yes, and if the ordinaries in the early, very early colonial days also would have sometimes provided a meal. That was the, the ordinary meal that you could get at a certain time. Um, so it, there's, it, it doesn't, uh, it, yeah, it, 
there's a, a wide range of things on offer. So you actually just segued perfectly into my next question okay. uh, that I had written down was, why was a tavern called a tavern or an ordinary in colonial times, but today we refer to it as a bar? Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with the physical structure of the, the, the bar itself. Um, the, the modern word for that, um, we did not, after prohibition, it was very high on a lot of regulators' um, agendas to not have a return of the saloon. The saloon had a bad reputation. And so new um, names came out. In, in Canada, more people called them taverns um, as they reopened after Prohibition. And I think there were quite a few taverns in the United States as well. Um, but the, the word bar really, I think, just took over in the modern parlance largely because of that. The Colonial Tavern didn't have a bar that you bellied up to. The Colonial Tavern had a, a kind of a tapster's cage where people would make the drinks and they'd go out through, but there was no communal sort of spot for everyone to, to hang out and bend an elbow. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right, so I also have here, uh, you mentioned that um, in colonial times, beer was used to hydrate. So what was the average alcohol content? <laughs> well, yes, yeah, some of the morning beers would have been very low in alcohol content. These would have been very light ales, absolutely. Um, but people were, you know, in the very early colonial days, people were drinking all day, um, really. And that would be a very common breakfast thing to have because the water in Europe was not trustworthy. Um, the water in North America would have exactly water got you sick. So, um, you know, you, you drank a, a very low alcohol beer throughout the day and that was how you rehydrated. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what role did women play in 18th century taverns? Ah. I know we have some records of women being tavern keepers and did that have any negative impact on their reputations? Um, well, I think this starts to change at a certain point, but if you, I've looked at Salem and in Salem, you know, in the early, in the witch trial days, many of the tavern keepers, the ordinary owners were women. It was pretty common in a, a lot of New England to, if you had a widow, um, if they could set up a tavern, then they wouldn't be a drain on society. They would be useful. And this was the kind of industry that they were um, allowed to be in at that time or encouraged to be in, I should say. Um, now, this starts to change um, fairly quickly. Th throughout the 1900s, you stop seeing women um, behind the bar or uh, frequenting the bar. Um, you know, it depends exactly. Uh, you know, on which region we're talking about. But I have this image that I used to show in one of my talks where you see this um, sort of wonderful tavern from the, I think it's early 1800s, and you see women in the bar and dogs and kids and lots of food and things along those lines. I shouldn't call it a bar, but you know what I mean? And then it changes, you know, by the end of the 1800s, one of the images that I have is of, um, uh, a, a bar that had a urinal underneath the um, where you leaned into so so people could just it was that's a spittoon so people could just use the spittoon beneath them so they wouldn't have to go outside and use the 
you know, some tree outside. And the reason that they did that was because they didn't want to lose their customer to the next bar over. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a very male space, you know, it's not for women. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so how mutually intelligible were bars, uh, between say the Northeast of the United States and Canada, like would a colonist back then, or even up and through prohibition, would you know how to order at a bar or a tavern if you were going to one out of the country? Yeah, our tavern history is extremely similar. I have a little bit less history um, on the Canadian side for what is actually what, what our taverns were like, but I've read enough to know that the basic elements are the same, open 24 hours, you know, uh, always the warmest place in town, serving relatively similar things, absolutely, um, in, that, in that early period. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've got a few more questions here for you. Um, how did prohibition affect Canada? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> Um, because we, we didn't have a national prohibition, um, but we did have uh, provinces, all provinces were dry for a period of time. In Ontario, we were dry from 1916 to 1927. Um, and then uh, every province has like, a, this is this maze of, of regulations for when places opened up and when people went dry in the first place. Um, Yes, if the question is related to um, how much we were involved in the smuggling of alcohol, to, yes, to some degree, um, we did make some money off of the United States. We made an awful lot of money off of alco-tourism. As we opened up our bars, Americans came up because what they really wanted was to go have drinks in Montreal uh, and go to those, those clubs and, and Vancouver. Um, so those were... Uh, that was a, a big source of revenue. Most of the actual alcohol, as I understand it, really came from Europe and went through St. Pierre and Miquelon, which are French islands, not Canadian ones. So we were kind of um, a part of the route, but we probably weren't the biggest profiteers at the beginning. We made a little more money as time went on and the Bronfman started pumping out more Canadian whiskey, but it's, I think, slightly exaggerated to what degree we got rich off of it. A lot of it was Europeans. I like the uh, alcohol tourism, that phrase is, <laughs> that's a very good one. Um, okay, so do you know, so during a pandemic, there were bars, do you know, in 1918, around the Spanish flu time, do you know anything about that? Um, I, you know, I have not actually looked into how that work played out exactly in the United States. I have looked at, um, you know, how that worked in, in Canada. Um, in Ontario, we were already dry, so it didn't make any difference. Um, but I, I know that the general idea was to close saloons, to close movie theaters, um, and to close all of those sort of public spaces that were about recreation and entertainment. Um, so in addition to schools, um, most municipalities or, or states, depending on who was doing the planning, um, would have been closing them. In Quebec, they, they, didn't, they were not dry at the time, I believe, and they did have to close them. I have to double check that. But yeah, I think it's different from place to place. So many states would have been dry by 1918. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Not even a non sequitur, basically <laughs> different, 
it takes, it means that where we're at now in this current pandemic, it's just a different level of unprecedented. Yes. Yeah. Panic, it feels like. Yeah. I mean, the influenza, I mean, one thing that's really interesting is I look at the Toronto Star um, reporting of it and it was never on page one ever, even though it killed a huge number of people in Toronto. It was, um, it was uh, always on page two because the war was dominating page one. So it was important, but not as important as that. That's really interesting. I also, uh, I studied journalism, so I understand the significance of front page above the fold, below the fold, yeah, exactly. uh, that sort of thing. So this uh, last question is actually mine. Ah. Um, so if you could dine with anyone at Francis Tavern, dead or alive, who would you choose? Oh, you know what? <clears throat> I just have to go with who came to my head right away. And it, dead or alive, right? Yep. I'd go with Christopher Hitchens. Oh, I like it. <laughs> okay. I, just, I was I expecting just, George Washington, but yes, I'm with <laughs> you on that one. I probably would have said that too. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, I think we're about, yeah, three minutes over. So I think we're going to wrap it up, but thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it's been a great time. Great. Thank you, Christine, Thank you. Allie, for joining us. What a great lecture. Thank you, Allie, for moderating the Q&A. I saw so many coming in during the lecture. Um, and thank you to all of you for joining us for our first Tavern Week lecture. Hopefully, this will become an annual event. Hopefully, it will become an in-person annual event next year. Fingers crossed. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us. If you are interested in attending other lectures, we are back with our normal monthly Thursday night lectures next week. We have a great speaker to talk about some George Washington things. Uh, tickets for that, much like this one, can be found on our website. Again, thank you to those of you who have donated. You are helping keep the museum going. Uh, even now that we're opening to the public slowly, we will still be continuing virtually for at least a few more months for these lectures. I see a question, will the lecture be available? Yes, recordings of this lecture will be available on our website and also a variety of places. So you can check out processtavernmuseum.org to find those. Um, if you have enjoyed, please consider donating to the museum. It's really helping us keep the mission alive, especially crucial at this time. Um, and I believe that's everything. Thank you for being here and have a great evening, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.